This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Jennifer DeBruin to the program. How are you, Jennifer? I'm doing great. Thanks, Bob. Well, you're welcome. Jennifer DeBruin is with us to discuss loyalist espionage in the American Revolution. She lives in Smith Falls, Ontario, Canada, and is descended from the people called loyalists, American colonists, who remained loyal to the British crown during the American Revolution. Many loyalists ended up, as did Jennifer's ancestors, settling in Canada. Before I ask you about the espionage, what was your family's story insofar as uh, coming from uh, the American colonies is concerned? So in relation uh, particularly to the Johnstown area, Mohawk Valley, um, I'm actually descended from over a dozen ancestors who were loyalists, um, most of them being the German Palatines, but some of them being the Scottish regiments which were brought over by Sir William Johnson. So our, our connection to the Mohawk Valley is very strong, and in fact, that's where all of my loyalist ancestors come from. So we have quite a, a strong connection to the area, that's for sure. I mentioned to you, and we'll explain why Jennifer and I were at the same function, but I remember mentioning to you I'd read a newspaper article about you in which you had said how some of your loyalist ancestors were Palatines, and I'm not by any means an authority on the revolution, but my sense always was that the Palatines who were from Germany were, uh, you know, formed a, a core group of the rebels during the American Revolution, but but not your family. No, um, in fact, a lot of the loyalists who settled uh, in Canada were my family settled, which was first called New Johnstown and now Cornwall, Ontario, were German Palatine uh, descendants. So that really shows you that it was a civil war. So despite the fact that, of course, many sided with the Patriot cause, uh, many of the other family members that kind of disappeared from the history books, maybe on the American side, did come north as loyalists. So certainly it was um, terrible in that sense. Jennifer De Bruin is the author of three historical novels, A Walk with Mary, Shadows in the Tree, and Daughter of Conflict. Shadows in the Tree is uh, set largely in the Mohawk uh, Valley, among the loyalist community, if you will. And Jennifer De Bruin recently spoke at the annual conference on the American Revolution Mohawk Valley, sponsored by the Fort Plain New York Museum. And I uh, have gone to that conference uh, every year and was was there and Jennifer's uh, talk was really very well received and the talk that she gave was not about her works of historical fiction uh, but was called Traitors, Spies, and Heroes Loyalist Espionage in the American Revolution can you can you set the stage for that what what was going on during uh, the revolution in, in terms of loyalist espionage so in terms of the group that I was talking about, they were the um, network that was working particularly in uh, Vermont, what we know as Vermont and New York State at this point. And, and essentially, I guess, um, although my ancestors t- tried to remain loyal or neutral sorry, um, during the revolution, of course, we knew neutrality was not an option. So, you know, average citizens began passing along information that I suppose they felt would be helpful in ending the war in some way, not necessarily that they had affiliation with any particular side. Uh, but, as it, but as it progressed, certainly it became much more structured spy network. 
So, as I said, loyal citizens um, would pass along information, as well as uh, people who were rec recruited into the spy service. So this was really, you know, sharing the information of how intricate and effective these spy networks were in getting information uh, to the British commanders, and then, of course, uh, thwarting some of the activities of the uh, American cause. How did they communicate, let's say, with the, with the British, who were maybe not in the Mohawk Valley, for example, anymore, or, or in, in, in Vermont? I mean, this is way before the age of uh, radio and the Internet and, and so on. How did they do it? So that was some of the most fascinating research that I did is the ways in which they got information across. Now, as I said, you know, average citizens were just listening into what was happening in their communities. So something like uh, rolling up a message into the hollow of a quill pen and that pen being passed along using sympathetic ink in which if you applied heat, then a secret message would appear maybe in the white spaces of a letter, which was the usual British uh, form of doing it. But even things like the way that laundry was hung out could send a message so that the person looking at that clothesline would know that the order or the color of the clothing would be a coded message. So it was just incredible how creative they became to hide those secret missives. Jennifer De Bruin is with us. She recently gave a talk at a conference on the American Revolution on loyalist espionage. You did spend some time in the talk talking about one uh, spy, if you will, or uh, one man named uh, George Smith, and I believe he was a, a medical doctor, right? He was. He was uh, a medical doctor who had come to the colonies from Ireland in about 1770. He had followed his brother Patrick here, who had been settled for quite a long time, and in fact was a, a friend of Schuyler's. So that's, that's very interesting. It shows you that they had a life prior to the American Revolution, um, but it's, you know, maybe no coincidence that I live in Smith's Falls, Ontario, and this Dr. George Smith appeared so often in the records as a fascinating character. Um, so, you know, really it was precipitated by wanting to know more about this vague notion of a spy had given the name for the town that I lived in in Canada. So certainly Dr. George Smith was a very active, um, stubborn, um, witty uh, spy, so it was certainly very effective, became second-in-command to the spy network under uh, Justice Sherwood. Huh. And uh, you say Smith's, Smith's Falls, where you live, is, was named for him? Yeah, so his, it, it was really named after his son Thomas uh, Smith, who had gotten land in this area. Of course, we're on the Rideau Canal, and it was perfect for mill sites, which, of course, many loyalists were looking to uh, rebuild again. But uh, certainly in looking at Thomas Smith's records, he was claiming his father's lands, uh, Dr. George Smith had died in 1789 before he could claim everything that was due to him. So him and his brother Terence claimed additional land. So they certainly were some of the early settlers in this region, and then, of course, lending the family name to the town. Now, maybe if you could tell us some of the stories about uh, Dr. Smith. I mean, he was imprisoned uh, more than once. He kept practicing medicine, and that was probably a, a great help to him in his espionage, and that uh, even if they didn't like him, you know, the, the rebels needed him. Yeah, so he was actually a uh, medical doctor and surgeon at a military hospital in Albany, and that was until he fell under suspicion. But uh, even after a lengthy imprisonment that he and his brother Patrick had endured in Albany, um, he did continue to practice uh, privately in Albany, even though he was under house arrest. 
I suppose, yes, he was a medical doctor and had to make a living, but probably was able also to extrapolate vital information and then pass it on to uh, the British commanders. So he, he was quite the character, and I mean, even in his own words and in the words of allies and enemies, he was a force to be reckoned with. Mm. And then he survived uh, the war, um, but uh, and sometimes when they were, I don't know what, um, disciplining him or the rebel cause, if you will, uh, they would uh, confine him to house arrest and, or things like that. It seemed like he was he was able to play the system pretty well. He he was because he could post bail. I suppose the fact that he had some money. Um, to be able to keep posting increasing amounts of the sureties. So, for example, in the records of the commissioners uh, for detecting and defeating um, conspiracies, it, you know, certainly he starts at putting a surety of 100 pounds sterling, and it works up to 500 pounds sterling. So he could keep posting the sureties to remain under house arrest and kept promising not to speak against the American cause course we know that didn't happen hmm. and who is he spying for i mean um is it the british or is it the the loyalists up in canada or or what so he would be considered a loyalist so everything was for the british cause uh, so the british commanders um particularly under uh sir frederick haldeman who was the governor general of quebec at the time and of course that was quite a a large area, and so he had set up this spy network and installed Dr. George Smith as the second-in-command of this uh, very effective spy network that was taking place. And maybe more, if we have time, maybe come back to some more uh, stories about the uh, the spies themselves, but he survived the war, uh, and then what was the process? You know, after the American Revolution ended, I know that uh, in the Mohawk Valley, uh, soldiers were granted land uh, in uh, what was the frontier. Did kind of a, and it sounds like kind of a similar thing happened in Canada. That's correct. So United Empire Loyalists could claim land for resettlement. Of course, it was minimum about 200 acres, but the more service you had and the higher the rank you could claim more. So Dr. George Smith in particular um, could not settle in the frontiers, so the wilderness essentially where most were being resettled, because he was in ill health after his imprisonment. So he ended up staying in Sorel, Quebec, while his sons and others, you know, kind of forged a new life in the wilderness. So he was actually due over 2,000 acres, which really shows you the amount of service that the British Crown felt that he had um, provided them. Mm. So that's, you know, some of his settlement, while the others were, as I said, going out and doing mill sites and, and uh, farms, of course. And, and I got the impression, and you know how we Americans are so abysmally ignorant of Canadian history, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I got the impression that when the, the, the British government was kind of settling things up, the war's over, we're not going to probably go back uh, to what is now New York State, um, and they started settling people like they did Dr. Smith in Quebec, there was a certain pushback from the Quebecois for uh, that. I mean, the French speakers in, uh, in Quebec didn't necessarily want all these English speakers coming there. Yeah, so this is where my own family history gets complicated because I'm actually descended from the earliest inhabitants of New France. And, of course, uh, they were conquered by Britain, and they were long established for generations, had 
cities. City of Montreal was, you know, fairly uh, well established at that point. So you can imagine they've got their communities, they've got their businesses, and now we have an influx of in that particular area, starting Montreal and up along the uh, St. Lawrence, eight to ten thousand refugees. Um, so there was a lot of pushback in that we even have records where the French will say that these people coming up were squatters on their land. Um, and it was basically to just try to make a homestead anywhere you could. So there was a lot of conflict between the refugees flowing yeah. north and and the established French community, that yeah. is for sure. It does remind you of, you know, American history and uh, over the years with different ethnic groups coming uh, to this country. And today, uh, maybe this country in Canada, but uh, specifically Europe with all the Middle Eastern and African refugees moving in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's... The wonderful thing about looking back into history is we can see the complexities um, that we believe are only true about our modern era were true in the time of our ancestors. And so it helps give some context um, that, you know, maybe we can learn some lessons from looking back and then using that against what we're experiencing now. We're talking with uh, Jennifer De Bruin, the author of three historical novels, and she is currently writing... Um, a book that will be nonfiction on the topic that we're discussing, loyalist espionage during the American uh, Revolution. She hopes to have that book available in the middle of uh, next year, uh, 2019. Back with uh, Jennifer DeBruin in just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore on behalf of the Historians Podcast and our GoFundMe campaign. You can go to this website, GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2018. And they'll walk you through how you can make a donation online using your credit card. If you'd rather not do that, um, use your credit card online, you could send me a check. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore. Send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Jennifer DeBruin with us uh, discussing loyalist uh, espionage uh, in the American uh, Revolution. Why did you start coming to the, the conference where um, you and I met this year? And, and it, well, it turns out, I believe you came to all the conferences. These, these are yearly conferences uh, held in the Mohawk Valley sponsored by Fort uh, Plain New York Museum. Right. So, yes, I have attended all four conferences that have taken place. And what originally brought us down there, and my mother and I were the first two to go down. In fact, we were the first two to go back since the American Revolution in our direct line. Um, The Mohawk Valley is very much a part of our conversation um, for those of us who are descended from the United Empire Loyalists of that area. I think the love of that place um, and the love of the life that they had experienced prior to the war was not lost through the generations. And so uh, when I saw the advertisement in the Loyalist Association's page, it was the perfect opportunity to go back. And it was so lovely because the first person to greet us was, of course, Brian Mack and, and Norm Bullen, but also um, my friend Todd Braestead, who said, welcome home. Uh. And we truly felt welcomed again. And, of course, it's just been such a pleasure to keep going back. I know uh, Norm and uh, Brian, and I know of uh, Todd Braestead. What, he, he's also a, a, an historian? He is, um, and he's also a Loyalist descendant, and he uh, has actually been a very active member in um, sharing the story of uh, the United Empire Loyalists, particularly those who also did not leave 
the United States, and, and that's a part sometimes that we forget, that not everybody flowed north. Sure, there was over 50,000 people who went north, most going to the East Coast, but there was many families who remained settled in the United States. Um, so he's been a, a wonderful advocate, and of course he's just such a, a powerhouse of knowledge about our history. I certainly rely on his uh, expertise. Now you've used the, the phrase United Empire Loyalists. So what, what is that? It's, it sounds like it existed then and then exists today as an organization? It does. So uh, there is the United Empire Loyalist Association of Canada, founded over 100 years ago. Um, of course, we were um, descended from uh, that term. That was the term used uh, by Lord Dorchester. I actually hold the only hereditary title in Canada, so anybody descended from a loyalist can use UE after their name, and that's the only hereditary title we have. Um, it was interesting to hear at the conference people saying royalist, um, because the discussion, of course, being that were you not loyal to the American cause also. <coughs> right. um, so, so great learning opportunities, but certainly that is the term that we use. And our association is active across Canada and um, globally. So years ago, when it was happening, the migration, let's say, of, of the loyalists to Canada, that's what the British government called them? Was that's right, yes. The United Anybody? Empire Loyalists, and that's still the name of the organization or there is an organization by that name. Um, I must say, I've uh, have learned a lot going to these conferences, and I think chief among uh, uh, that these lessons came from you and your fellow loyalists. There's another lady whose name always escapes me. I remember when I went to one of the conferences, she was out in the parking lot with a with a piece of paper saying, look at this, this is the Declaration of Dependence, which was signed by this one and that one. You know, the, in other words, we have the Declaration of Independence, but apparently they had kind of a rival Declaration of Dependence uh, during uh, uh, the colonial era. And it was right. just interesting to hear that point of view. Yes. You know, I guess that's the thing. Um, it's not as black and white as we might think it is. Um, and certainly during the panel discussion at the most recent conference, it, it was so interesting to hear, and I thought it was a good conversation to be having, um, that we sort of, you know, realized that it, people did not side with one or the other cause so easily. Yeah. Well, I remember that. Uh, yeah, that, that was actually, I believe, Brian's idea, or <clears throat> Brian told me to do it because uh, I was the um, moderator of this panel. They, we had eight authors and researchers, uh, such as uh, uh, Jennifer, on the panel, and asked each of them, and also engaged the audience in conversation about if you were alive in the revolution, would you have been a loyalist or patriot? And five of the speakers. And I believe maybe only two were from Canada. Five were leaning toward loyalists, and three of the speakers were "quote unquote" patriots. The audience, though, was mainly uh, patriot. What do you make of that? Well, I just thought it was it was interesting, and I just wonder if it's uh, the complexities of what research can un. Uh, uncover. And I think that was a little bit surprising to me because I think if I hadn't have done so much research, I may have just said loyalist freely and easily. But in looking at the research and hearing the words come off the page of the individuals themselves say, you know, it was not such an easy choice um, that we have to realize that that was the truth of the matter. I mean, one of the comments was, well, if the Committee of Safety called you before them, then you were a patriot. And then if they turned around and the British got a hold of you, of course you were going to be a loyalist. So um, it's survival, yeah. really. 
And and again, uh, the perspective uh, I thought was broadened with uh, the last talk of uh, Wayne Lennig, uh, who lives in Fort Johnson. I mean, and is also on the board of the Fort Play Museum, but he's an anthropologist, <clears throat> and he's been studying the Tryon County. I think Committee of Safety or maybe Committee of Correspondence, I forget which it was. And you can, if the way Wayne had described it, you could see how it changed when Sir William Johnson, the great colonial leader, was alive. This committee was uh, you know, kind of pro-Crown or pro-Johnson, whatever Johnson wanted. Yeah, but, right. but after his death, maybe, I don't know if it was slowly but surely, it was probably somewhat rapidly, it became you know kind of like a committee in the French Revolution, you know, wondering, oh, well, what are those... Uh, people over there doing and, and, and so forth. Right. Well, you know what's so interesting is that I have loyalist ancestors who were on the Committee of Correspondence, only to be called before the Committee of Safety at, because they were trying to be neutral, but they were called to account, pick one side or the other. So it, that that I find really fascinating. And again, just goes to speak that these individuals had lives before the American Revolution. I mean, they were colonial Americans. Our history did not start in 1775 when the Troubles began. Um, so, you know, we have to remember that, that they were well known to each other and very often family to each other. Mm. And as I mentioned some minutes ago now, uh, Jennifer De Bruin has announced that uh, she's going to turn what has been her research and presentation on loyalist espionage uh, during the American Revolution into your first uh, nonfiction book. Why did you decide to do this now? Well, I dared not bring the binder full of research and the uh, computer uh, programs I had going because uh, there is certainly so much information. I mean, the, the task, the mammoth task, was to whittle it down to one hour presentation um, I don't have to really tell the story. So as an experienced author, and I do write uh, nonfiction articles quite often, it's stringing the voice of all of these players um, together to tell their own story. Um, so in that, in that sense, I'm just essentially organizing all of the research that I've been doing for uh, more than a year, uh, certainly. Mm. So you do hope to have the book out next year. And you mentioned this before, but maybe you, uh, because you're going to, debut it, if you will, at a gathering of the United Empire Loyalists in Canada? That's correct. So every year we have an annual conference, and it is actually being held in Ottawa, Gatineau next year, the weekend before the American Revolution Conference in the Mohawk Valley, which is wonderful because already I know that there's many United Empire Loyalist descendants who are going to take advantage of both. So I'd like to have it ready for that first conference, and then of course, um, for the American Revolution Conference, as I already have my name down on the list <laughs> to join. <laughs> okay, so you'll be a speaker again at the American Revolution Conference, and I believe it's taking place in early June next year, and uh, Brian Mack and Norm Bolin will get out information about that. We have just yeah, over... Sure I'll be a speaker, though. That's, I'll just clarify that. I'm I, sorry? I will, I'll be attending. I'm not sure I'll be a speaker yet. Okay. Well, I hope they do have you speak, because I think it will be <laughs> very interesting. Um, and I, and yours was one of the uh, most popular uh, talks at the recent uh, the recent conference, and and also you know, and I've talked to mainly Norm about about this. You were the only female speaker, <laughs> and I, I sure was. <laughs> and I believe it. In other years, we've had other different Canadian perspectives and other females, but. Um, in fact, somebody was telling me it's the only conference he goes to because it tends to attract men, the uh, right. 
this conference, where, where the, the big line's at the men's room, not the ladies' room. <laughs> right, yes. So, and I yes. think they'd like to change that or, you know, have more um, women speakers, you know, in, in particular. But so. Yeah, I was very pleased to be asked first. As I, I was the only Canadian on the um, speakers list in addition to being the only female. But uh, I had such lovely comments from individuals who uh, were so complimentary, not only um, in the material that I presented, but in hearing a female voice um, on history and, and on the history that we share. In fact, <clears throat> your voice, I think, was kind of comparable. I don't know if you were there <clears throat> when Russell Shorto spoke about Revolution Song. Right. In that his, you know, he's not an historian. Real, I mean, he is. I mean, he does historical, I mean, maybe not a professional historian. I mean, he's, he's best known for a book that's historical, the island at the center of the world. But as opposed to talking about, in his book, Revolution Song, as I understand it, uh, that as opposed to talking about how, how the revolution did this or this was the meaning of that, he just presented stories uh, from people who uh, were alive at the time of the revolution. And I, I Yeah, and you know, that's so wonderful about that because it certainly marries with my sensibilities because my tagline is discover the humanity in the history. And while there certainly is human story within the tactical engagements and, you know, the military um, history, certainly there were average, everyday citizens experiencing extraordinary history, and it's nice to hear their voices within the context of this war. Mm-hmm. It is hard to find some of that information, but uh, it can be done, or it is done, you know, with, with a certain, quite a bit of work with it. We just have, about, like, now three minutes left, but uh, about your historical novels, uh, you're also working on a fourth historical novel, correct? I am. I am, yes. They're fact-based historical fiction. So all of the histories really is the real names of the individuals. And what I essentially do is I research what was most plausible for their thought processes and how they spoke to give the, the narrative of their story. This one, amazingly, is American-based story. I found a little tiny book years ago in northern New York, um, published in 1865, and it just happened that the individual who owned it left enough clues of her life, of how much she loved the book, her maiden name, her married name, that I actually traced her entire family's story. Mm. And that's going to be in the new book? It's going to be, yes, my fourth fact-based historical fiction, yes. Um, Just back to geography. You're in Smith Falls, Ontario, Canada. How right. how far is that in terms of uh, travel from, let's say, Johnstown, New York? So, yep, it's four and a half hours south of us, basically. Um, so my crossing point, believe it or not, is Johnstown, Ontario. Okay. And uh, that's across the bridge, so that's about uh, 40 minutes from where I am. And then we get into the United States and start heading south. Now, did you say that when you first came, to, had you been to America, United States of America, before coming to the first conference here? Yes, I'm actually descended from very early New Englanders. I'm a descendant of the Deerfield Raid of 1704, um, the first uh, American colonists in New Haven, Connecticut. So actually New England, uh, Massachusetts, and Maine being the main uh, locations were our family vacation spots when our children were young. Oh, is that right? Yes, every year. So you would come on vacation to the U.S. Yes. 
Well, we're, we're just about uh, out of time. Our guest has been Jennifer De Bruin from uh, Smith's Falls, Ontario, Canada, the author of three historical novels, A Walk with Mary, Shadows in the Tree, and Daughter of Conflict. She's currently writing her fourth book of uh, fiction, historical fiction, or she calls it fact-based fiction, and she's also working on a nonfiction book, which will uh, be based on the talk that she gave this year to the American Revolution uh, Conference in the Mohawk Valley, the talk uh, called Loyalists, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Espionage Campaign, or Campaigns, if you will, of uh, Loyalists in the American Revolution uh, back in the 1700s. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Thank you.